Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit BlankRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. Stephen G. Post, and we will be talking about his newly released book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. How do we approach a deeply forgetful loved one so as to notice and affirm their continuing self-identity? For three decades, Stephen G. Post has worked around the world encouraging caregivers to become more aware of and find renewed hope in surprising expressions of selfhood despite the challenges of cognitive decline. In this book, Dr. Post offers new perspectives on the worth and dignity of people with Alzheimer's and related disorders despite the negative influence of hypercognitive values that place an ethically unacceptable emphasis on human dignity as based on linear rationality and strength of memory. And we'll be talking about that during the show. Uh, Dr. Stephen Z. Post is a best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. The British Medical Journal designated his book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, a medical classic of the 20th century. Dr. Post is among a handful of individuals awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the National Alzheimer's Association. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. For more information, you can visit his website, which is stephengpost.com, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-Post.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Stephen to the show. Good day, sir. Well, good day to you, Robert. I hope things are well for you down there in South Carolina. Yes, sir. We're bright and sunny today and no rain, so yay. It's a good day. And you are located where? Stony Brook, which is a town on the north shore of Long Island, looking out over Bridgeport across Long Island Sound and New Haven, and about an hour due east of Manhattan uh, by car. And there's a university. Well, yes, I know. It's very very good university. Um, I actually uh, started my college days in SUNY Oswego and had a roommate from Stony Brook. So, I mean, it was uh, that SUNY connection. Yes, Oswego is a good place. It's, they, they do lots of good work with, uh, with teachers and education, but they have many strengths. Uh, yeah. And it's pretty yeah. up there. It's nice up there. It is, except for the Winter, <laughs> we're in the, in the below ground dormitory. Uh, I actually didn't finish school there. I went to Whittier College and, and oh. got my BA in, in psychology from there. But but it was that was that first year and a half in Osvigo that um, sent me California. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so I have a friend who taught at Whittier for many many years in theology and ethics and philosophy. Joe Price. I don't know if he was around. Joe Price. Hmm. I I don't know. Um, yeah, so um, I graduated in 79, so that was um, probably a little while ago. <laughs> it may have been a little bit of worse time. Okay, yeah. good. So well, let's get to talking about um, today's topic, um, how to um, be with uh, deeply forgettable people. Um, so you, you have this classic book of, of yours, um, the, the moral challenge of 
Alzheimer's disease. So, and that was in the seven. I mean, in the nineties, correct? That, that that was. Yeah, 1995, and then 2000 was the second edition. Right. So, why why is this book now? What what, what is it that inspired you to write this book at this time? Well, when I wrote the earlier uh, book, uh, which was successful, I was thinking for the most part, about particular ethical issues from diagnosis all the way to dying and so forth. Uh, but uh, over the years, uh, I've done a lot more work with deeply forgetful people and their caregivers, and I uh, have come around to think that the most important contribution uh, to be made is to really change the language game. So it's all in the title, Robert, you know, Deeply Forgetful People, uh, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, meaning I'm not embracing the word dementia in this book, although it shows up, of course, now and again, but uh, <clears throat> that is a purely negative uh, term. It's a, it's a necessary medical term, but it's, it's, an, it's a term of, of uh, cognitive decline from a former mental state. And so it invites uh, a language of diminution, uh, of uh, absence. Uh, they're gone, they're empty, they're a husk, a shell. Whereas deeply forgetful is more uh, continuous with all of us. It's a spectrum, spectrum of forgetfulness. And uh, it's more inclusive. and not so much them versus us. They're demented and, and we're not. I think we all have moments in life when we struggle with, with memory and, uh, uh, and, and we need to realize that their experience is not all that alien uh, when compared with, uh, with our own. It is. It's, 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 it's an intensification, but it's not a completely alien experience. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, um, last week your publicist had contacted me that I hadn't sent in all the related information to contact him, which is really enlightening. I have a process, you know, over 12 years. It's like, you know, A, a to Z, you know, and, and in the course of studying that the, the email that it was scheduled um, didn't happen. I was like, oh, my God, here I am forgetting to send out an email and we're talking about people forgetful people. <laughs> but, but there you, there, there you are. Good. You're on the spectrum, young man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had no doubt. And very resistant. But, but, but I think, you know, you're right in the sense of the power of words in, in the um, – but by changing verbiage um, that doesn't carry so many so much baggage would be a great way to start the reframing of, of how we interact with people who are deeply forgetful. Yeah, Martin Luther King was always discussing the beloved community, capital B, capital C, and he said the first thing to allow people to enter into the beloved community is language. So dementia uh, is uh, sometimes used derisively. Uh, politicians uh, who have an axe to grind will call their opponent a demented, and uh, it's 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 a word that that uh, is essentially uh, a negative term, whereas deep forgetfulness is more, I hate to say this, well, you went to Whittier College, it's, it's a little more mystical. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, it's, I mean, that's a Quaker college, you know, um, uh, historically. Um, I mean, we, 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 we don't know what's going on uh, in the consciousness of these individuals. So I, I, I reject in the book... Um, what I call hypercognitive values, the way in which Western philosophers and culture uh, overvalue um, linear uh, rationality, means-ends rationality, uh, productivity rationality, 
and I emphasize a different kind of rationality, which people with dementia have all the way until the end, and that is symbolic rationality. In other words, you can take somebody who has long since stopped speaking uh, in conversation, uh, and if you give them something meaningful, like, for example, a rosary bead, um, they will very likely uh, be able to uh, to say a prayer. Uh, if you if if you look at the lives of these individuals, I knew a guy in in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a Clevelander uh, by heart and disposition. Uh, he was named uh, he was named Clint, and he worked country and western. He wore country and western in the uh, uh, steel mills on the west side of the Cuyahoga River, and he became uh, deeply forgetful. And even to the very end, he clutched his cowboy hat. Uh, he slept with it. He had it with him all the time, and you couldn't separate him, was, except when he took a shower, and that, and, and that was it had to be done delicately. But it's as though he still knew, despite all, that his identity, his narrative, was was locked up somehow uh, with this, or connected with this symbol, this object. And, you know, there's so many cases like this. Uh, um, You know, de Kooning, the artist, uh, 14 years with dementia. He painted for 13 and a half years and would sporadically rise up and dip his paint in uh, um, in acrylic and go up to the easel. And then he had a posthumous exhibit. Uh, Beautiful stuff that was actually, I think, better than anything he'd ever done. So... um, he was disinhibited. He was able to paint things that were more euphoric, more mm-hmm. light-tempered, more uh, more loving, less less anxious, and uh, and so you, you, everybody, you know, will will tell you that I I knew a, uh, a, a professor at Yale, Leander Keck, his wife Janet uh, um, had Alzheimer's, and she would walk around the Divinity School there. Uh, and she wouldn't communicate at all much, I mean, very sporadically. But when you brought her to that Yale chapel on Sunday morning, uh, she would chime in with the with the hymns that she was deeply uh, uh, aware of. She would pray. She would lighten up. She would go through a lot of the uh, rituals and so forth. And so somehow or another, um, the symbolic Janet Keck, was always there, even though the uh, linear rationality has faded. It, the, the reasoning of who of who she was was still there. Hmm. So, do you feel that we should be um, looking at the a, a person's symbolic rationality as the the strength of symbolic rationality as a um, kind of as a, a marker, um, I guess, or, or you know, does, is that kind of like the last thing to go? Well, you said that it would kind of go to the very well, end. It's not even the last thing to go. I mean, it's just there. Okay. I mean, you can, you can okay. take people who are way, way far along in this uh, – progression, which is always, by the way, you've seen one case, you've seen one case, because the progression is never uh, easily staged, uh, and it varies widely, and most diagnoses are not just of Alzheimer's disease, they're mixed diagnoses. Someone might have some uh, uh, vascular dementia, they might have some chronic traumatic encephalitis, the concussion stuff, because they got slammed around a little bit too much playing hockey when they were 18. Who knows? Um uh, but it's usually not one one thing, and 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 you can't really predict uh, uh, its rate of decline or relative stability. Just like I say, you've seen one case, you've seen one case. But I'll tell you, uh, many many many, and there's many accounts of this in the book. And uh, so many caregivers will talk about being surprised by moments of lucidity. I call that paradoxical lucidity. Uh, some call it terminal lucidity, but I don't like that. I like paradoxical because it can go on, you know, many years, m- many months before someone's going to die. 
uh, you're just surprised. So, you know, they haven't been communicating. And then, lo and behold, um, you know, they they kind of, you know, they respond to personalized music. And, uh, you know, in, in Brooklyn, there's a memory center where old folks come with their memory disorders. And uh, they may just sit around in, in chairs for 20 minutes or so or half an hour. And they're not communicating at all. But then in comes an Alzheimer's poet. And with animation and uh, uh, little musicality, he will he will uh, uh, provide them a wonderful rendition of, say, Robert Frost's "The Road Less Traveled," and about you know, eighty percent of them will chime in. They will suddenly begin to uh, uh, share in a verse, and then afterwards, about half of that group will actually be uh, conversant for for a period of time. Uh, they sort of come back into themselves. And and the Music in Memory movement, there's a website called musicinmemory.com, which gives you all kinds of examples of people who have, again, come back into themselves um, through um, through music and through poetry and through many other uh, 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 venues. So, I, so you can never say that somebody is gone, a husk, empty, a shell, yada, yada, yada. You always have to be open-minded and be open to surprises, and the surprises will come. But you have to notice them. You have to want to notice them. Yeah, and I would think be ready to engage <laughs> on that yes. level when yeah. they occur. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, use language well, too. So, uh, you know, don't ask somebody what would you like for breakfast or how are your kids? Because that mm-hmm. puts, the, puts the pressure on them to remember words. And, you know, word finding is a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not the worst problem in the world. You know, I mean, I, I'm in a big medical school here at Stony Brook, and, and there's hundreds and hundreds of students. And on any given day, I'll remember, you know, uh, some of the names, but not all the names. So it's, it's not like, you know, we should take offense at someone who's deeply forgetful, forgetting our particular name. Uh, it's not that important. I think they can still know who you are. They can still sense who you are. Um, they can have a, a glimmer in their eye when you're around. Uh, so uh, naming is not the be-all and end-all. Um, I certainly think that's, that's, that's the case. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are people who are there. You always have to assume they're there, and you have to ask them, uh, close-ended questions. So, what would you like? Would you like an omelet, or would you like oatmeal? And then they'll probably mm-hmm. say, "Well, an omelet," because you're you're cueing them, you're reminding them of words. As as and and you don't say, "How's your how are your sons?" You say, "How's Will?" and "How's mm-hmm. David?" Mm-hmm. And somebody who's been completely silent in response to your questions. Well, someone say, "Oh, David, you, you know, yeah, he's fine." Don't, you know, don't, you can, you have to cue them in with your language game. Yeah, the language, and you know, I've um, spoken with um, many um, a person who works uh, with those with deeply forgetful. Um, uh, Thank you. So, <laughs> but um, <laughs> one of the things that, you know, you mentioned a couple times is the idea of music. I mean, I have seen, um, I've been to um, like assisted living facilities and seen the place come alive with music and, and to the point where, you know, of course, in the summer they would even schedule in groups and that kind of thing for music. Um, so is is that, I mean, it seems to me that music plays a, a really important um, role in, in, in connection um, because we always we often have songs that take us back to a particular moment in time or place. So do you feel that that's uh, um, something that we should uh, um, those who work with oh yeah forgetful songs. <laughs> um, install that into their life. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, music is so key. Uh, you know, we have a, we have a veterans uh, 
assisted living home here on the Stony Brook campus. It's a pretty big one. They do music in memory uh, in in the uh, Alzheimer's unit. Uh, there are you know probably seventy or eighty people there at any one time. But what what they'll do is because they're all, they're all, they all have a military history, so they'll um, they'll uh, put up on the big screen TV uh, a, a flag uh, flowing in the wind, and then uh, the music will be. Uh, uh, it's a grand old flag, or uh, God bless America. And most of these people who have otherwise just been sitting there in these chairs, these jury chairs with their heads down, their chins on their on their chests, not conversing at all, a, a, a majority of them will definitely chime in, just you know verbally. Almost all of them will become somatically active if they were just passive you know they'll suddenly start bouncing around a little bit with their legs and their arms they'll get rhythmic because uh, that's so basic and um, and then a number of them will actually sing verses and afterwards mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, if if you time it well and you you know you just ask if you select people uh, a question or two uh, you know appropriately uh, they'll they'll answer. They'll they'll actually have a sense of who they are and what they are. Uh, you know, it's quite impressive. So music is 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 really the thing that shows caregivers that these people are alive inside. They're still alive. They're not gone. They ain't dead. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I again, I've been in several facilities, and I have seen you know. Um, some folks just, some of the residents just, you know, sitting alone and, you know, just kind of lost in the world, you know, I mean, it seems, but, um, but, you know, and, and I just think that it's just one of those things that they, um, haven't, that the caregivers haven't found the right, um, song or the right poem or, you know, the right kind of trigger, I guess, to, yeah. you know, bring someone to lucidity. Um, bring them bring them back a bit. You know, I'm not, not to work yeah. miracles, but to bring them back a little bit. And, you know, uh, uh, nature is important, too. They, 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 they're very aware of uh, colors, of uh, the texture of the seasons. And uh, so, there, you know, back in Cleveland, there was a woman named Naomi File who started the uh, Eden Alternative System. So there, that's where you have assisted living programs. And uh, even in, in, in the nursing home part of the, of the, of the facility, you'll have uh, um, Alzheimer's retrievers, you'll have small ones, you'll have birds, you'll have... Uh, uh, Lots of plants, and uh, you'll have the music of uh, uh, chirping, uh, chirping birds. Uh, the whole thing is set up, and so that people can feel that they're one with nature, because that sense of um, cherishing nature is very, very deep in us as well, just like music. So that can help, and and. Uh, uh, you know, I just think there's a lot that we're learning. You know, nursing homes used to be just hospitals in a in a in a in a in a brick building on the corner. Um, they're a lot better than that now. Uh, not all of them, but most of them are are getting pretty sophisticated. And also, you know, it, it, the older adults is not just letting them have meals on wheels. It's encouraging them to actually be doing things that are socially meaningful. Like helping with the local walkathon by, you know, in the room in assisted living, uh, you know, putting print on the shirts or weaving the baskets. I mean, all of this kind of involvement is extremely helpful. Uh, it it uh, diminishes depression, it diminishes anxiety, and you get a longer um, lifespan because of it too. Yeah. Now, the part of you mentioned meals on wheels, the Trying, or making sure, ensuring 
that someone who has a healthy diet and also regular exercise can be challenging, you know, um, for yeah. some, but but it's still important nonetheless. It is, you know, um, exercise, walking, ambulation is so important for cerebral blood flow, for for the blood flow in your brain, and that has been shown in a number of very good studies uh, to be stabilizing. Uh, for people with dementia, and also preventive for older adults who may not be demented uh, but are, are, you know, struggling with memory. And so a little bit of walking does a whole lot. So often, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, uh, cases of uh, so-called Alzheimer's are not pure Alzheimer's, but they involve uh, vascular dementia, which are these small stroke events often in the white matter of the brain, and you don't notice them. They're not huge knockdown, drag-out stroke events, but they're just there sort of underneath the surface, and they do affect memory over time. So one thing you can do is be careful of, you know, get some exercise. Diet is, seems to make a difference. Uh, don't, I mean, really good stuff in the last few years on, on uh, how... Um, uh, you don't want to take in a lot of sugar and a lot of carbohydrates because that doesn't uh, allow the brain to flourish uh, as you get older, uh, as you get into your older years. You're better off with, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet. So you want my recipe, uh, you know, walk. Okay, so walk. Don't, don't, don't hit your eye. Walk with friends because prosociality is a, you know, social interaction is a good thing. Um, walk with friends um, to a possibly a Greek restaurant, possibly, and um, you know order yourself uh, you know a nice big salad and um, and enjoy it, and then on the way back uh, stop by the library and play a game that you haven't played before with your friend. So, so you know, the, the the whole thing is is uh, is to is to is to age well, to have a healthy aging, not to just be passive, not to be uh, you know sitting back on the chair all the time, but getting out and and having a little bit of a life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we're uh, halfway through the show, Stephen, so I'm going to take a quick break, and I do want to invite listeners if you would like to call in and ask Stephen any questions. You can call in at 619-789-4359. And for those listening live in the chat room, you can go ahead and, and pose a question there. And then when we come back from break, Stephen, um, I want to talk about get into some of the um, the heavier subjects of um, PPAS, preemptive physician assisted suicide. That's a good thing to talk about. Yeah, we'll get into that. And um, I also want to talk, uh, just to get a sense about who Dr. Joseph M. Foley was, okay? Oh, yes. Great, great. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. 
I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Good day, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today my very special guest is Dr. Stephen G. Post, and we're talking about his new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And again, you can find out more about this book as well as his other book and everything he has to offer by visiting his website, which is stephengpost.com, and that's Stephen with a PH. Okay, Stephen, we're back. We're back. Okay, happily good. so. So, yeah, well, one of, when I was going through reading your book, one of the things that um, kind of jumped out real fast because because you attribute your writing to uh, Dr. Joseph M. Foley. So tell us about the gentleman and, and how he inspired you and guided you. Well, Joe Foley, he was uh, an amazing neurologist. He's the only neurologist who was the president of the American Neurological Society and the American Society for Neurosciences. He was a Harvard Med School graduate. He was a medic at Utah Beach in, in at, uh, the Normandy invasion and uh, uh, won every medal imaginable. He saved so many people. There was one, one guy who was brought to uh, his little medic shelter uh, on a stretcher and had a huge gash in his carotid. And Joe recognized him as one of his classmates from, from the medical school. And uh, his classmate looked at him and said, Joe, am I going to make it? And Joe had to say, I don't think so. He had a, had a huge gash in his carotid artery. And uh, his last words were, here I am, stuck on a beach. I really need a doctor, and I run into a quack like you. And then he died. <laughs> it's an amazing story. But but Joe Foley, you know, he, was at, he, he came to Case Western in, like, 1964 and was the chair of neurology. And he's the one who pretty much recruited me from Fordham in New York uh, out to Case Medical School in 1988. And we worked together. He, he recruited me specifically to work with uh, people with Alzheimer's, but also other other dementing diseases because, you know, dementia is, is a syndrome. It's a cluster of symptoms, uh, as I say, dementia, uh, but it's caused by many, many different diseases. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, neurosyphilis was the major cause of dementia because people uh, uh, didn't live that long. They didn't have antibiotics. So uh, uh, there's a lot of things that can cause dementia. And he was the, ch- the chairman of the NIH panel that uh, actually did the differential diagnosis of all, all these uh, dementing illnesses related to old age. So he was a very amazing guy. He was very kind and very loving. And he never met anybody who he was not going to be supportive and kind to, and that even included a bum like me. So <laughs> we traveled in the book. You know, there's all kinds of stories about Joe and I traveling around Ohio and even around the country. And uh, he, he he was amazing. We went to a, a, a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio, called Heather Hill one time, and uh, there was a special unit for folks who were deeply forgetful, and we read the biosketch on the wall of one guy named Jim. <clears throat> Said he had a couple of sons and was in business. And <clears throat> So then we went out into the main floor and I asked the nurse, can you show us Jim? So I, I, I took Jim by the arm and we sat down at the table and, uh, um, and I asked him, you know, how his sons were, which was a mistake. He couldn't respond. Then I asked, I asked him, how's, how's Luke and how's Jamie? Then he did respond a little bit. But then he was he was mute for four or five minutes, but he had a twig in his hand, and he took this twig and he put it in my hands, and when he did that, he smiled, this electric smile. It was like so warm and energizing, and if a smile could be electric, the place would have been on fire. And I asked the nurse, what's the story with this twig? Turns out his he, he grew up on a farm in Ohio, and he loved his father very much, and his father gave him a little chore in the mornings, which was to bring 
kindling in for the fireplace. So he was mostly living in the in the, in the distant past in a kind of safe haven emotionally that he identified with tender uh, tender love. And 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 then there was a puppet. There was a puppet on the floor, and uh, uh, it was all beat up and old and ragged. And he was, surprisingly he picked it up. And he walked over to the corner of the room and he put it on the lap of a woman who was crying. And she stopped crying. And I asked the nurse, so what's the story with that puppet doll? And the nurse said, well, that was her doll. And and uh, and, and so somehow Jim knew in that situation, uh, he had emotional intelligence uh, despite his cognitive decline. Pretty impressive. Wow. So Joe Foley insisted that we think about that, that we really respect and honor and uh, make a place in our hearts for deeply forgetful people. Yeah, that, well, I think he made a, a wise choice. <laughs> he is a good character. <laughs> <of character. laughs> so, but, but that, yeah, that's, um, that's wonderful to be able to have um, someone, you know, mentor that compassion. And um, that's great. I just wanted to make sure you gave him his due. I wanted to make sure to give him his due as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, okay, now I want to um, move into the um, controversial area of uh, preemptive physician-assisted suicide, or PPAS. Um, now, I read in your book that you've, your perspective on this is evolving, I guess, might be a word. Um, am I correct on that? Yeah, well, you know, it's, I'm I'm never going to be a proponent, a, a, an advocate for uh, assisted suicide for people who have a diagnosis of a, some sort of progressive dementia, um, because I I take too seriously the idea that we can really be with them and we can discover them and we can recognize their value and that's good for them and good for us as a society, but uh, on the other hand. Uh, back in my days at the University of Chicago as a student there, I had two mentors who were both psychiatrists, and they were both diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease. It's always probable. It's never exact. And uh, one of them had a family, and he loved his family very much. They loved him. And he, he, he was around for another 10 or 12 years. He was in, for a while, he was in an assisted living center in uh, Hyde Park, Chicago. Uh, Chase Kimball was a great guy. And uh, I had another mentor uh, who was diagnosed, and lo and behold, uh, he uh, he swallowed 40 secanols and put a plastic bag over his head. Now, he had no family. He had no one he could trust or depend on. He had no one who was going to advocate for him because he didn't want to die with a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural. He He was not thinking that uh, he wanted to be subjected to a lot of technological uh, intervention. He just wanted to to die in peace, but he couldn't quite believe that that could happen to him. So uh, that's the way he went out. Now, I was never judgmental of him because I thought, hey, also, I mean, he was an incredibly brilliant guy. He'd written many, many books. He was world famous. I won't give his name, but, um, he, you know, he, he didn't like this idea of... Uh, of decline, uh, and 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 he was a very hypercognitive guy. I used that word before. You know, I'm not, but he's a hypercognitive guy. He was, and and so for him, losing his um, his cognitive uh, skills was like death itself. Uh, and 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 for my for for my other mentor, uh, you know, he was he was a smart guy. He was a good psychiatrist, but he knew that there were a lot of things in life. Uh, like kindness and and joy and mirth and and just consciousness itself, awareness of one's environment. You know, he 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 could see you could have a quality of life uh, and also be deeply forgetful. Um, so, you know, I I don't I don't judge the one who killed himself. Uh, and I've actually so I've known neurologists in Ohio who have actually you know sometimes patients will come to a neurologist. This will shock you a little bit. And they'll say, look, I don't want to go through this. Give me a prescription. 
And the neurologist mm-hmm. generally won't do it, but some will, even though it's not quite legal. And, but they don't want to be there and, and, and kind of facilitating them because that would get them mm-hmm. in trouble. So I have actually, I, and I don't facilitate, but on three or four occasions, which are discussed in the book, I have been asked by families to witness uh, one of these events. So, for example, in a small home by Lake Erie, um, uh, I witnessed uh, a very wonderful elderly woman who uh, was uh, getting more and more deeply forgetful. Uh, uh, you know, she with her husband and with her adult children, not the grandkids, thank God, but, you know, with, mm-hmm. with, with those people around and with um, with the music playing. She was an Episcopalian, loved church music, with Johann Sebastian Bach uh, playing uh, 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 on the recorder. You know, she... Uh, um, she swallowed after a prayer. Uh, I did pray with her. She swallowed a chocolate milkshake full of secanol. And then, um, you know, by the fire with her feet up, uh, quite peaceful, getting hugged by, by those closest to her. And then she just, you know, nodded away, uh, seemed to be asleep, and then she stopped breathing. And it was not horrendous. Now, that's not legal any place. In the country, even right. in Oregon, you know, I went to Reed College, by the way, Oregon, Washington, the places where, where assisted suicide, you have to have two doctors independently testify that you, or write down that you are likely to die within six months. You have to have your capacity to make a choice and to actually facilitate the assisted suicide and literally swallow the concoction. Um, but... Uh, with something like dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, long before you're within a half a year of death, uh, you've lost your ability to carry out this kind of action. And so what do you do? Well, ALS patients, actually, in, in Oregon and Washington, uh, because for them, I mean, they, they are lucid of mind. They don't lose their lucidity. And you can uh, know pretty clearly when they're within six months of death because they're usually... Uh, at that point, making a choice do they want to go on a ventilator machine or not. Um, mm-hmm. So so, mm-hmm. so people with pancreatic cancer, uh, ALS, they have a right to assisted suicide, but not people who are dealing with something like uh, progressive uh, Alzheimer's disease. So I'm not going to take a position, but I had known, I, so I wrote an article, which is in the book, by the way, part, you know, partly the, the vignette is in the book, about a guy in San Francisco, and he was a street clown. Okay, you were out at Whittier, so you know the West Coast. He was a street clown, you know. And, and you know, he's, he's out in front of the San Francisco library, and he's doing all these shit. He never, he's, he's what, what people in the field of dementia care call a live alone. Uh, about 20% of people, uh, older adults, don't have any families. And so, uh, and, and he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a little bit of money. He lived in an apartment in San Francisco, um, and lo and behold, um, he took his savings and he bought a ticket, and uh, plane ticket, and he went to Switzerland to a place called Dignitas, and that's a place where they will uh, basically put you to sleep, um, and uh, and that's what he did. And people have gone to the Netherlands, they've gone to Mexico. Uh, I've, I've known some people who have gone to Quebec because Quebec is now allowing this. Um, so it's, it's a very significant question. I don't condone it. I don't run around saying let's have preemptive physician-assisted suicide because I think it, you know, especially in our country where there's not so much support for long-term care, families have to spend down into poverty to get benefits. You know, unlike Canada and the other places I mentioned, where they have all these very elaborate programs for, you know, for free long-term care and free hospice and so forth, we don't have that. So, so it's kind of a forced choice, and I, I, I don't, I don't find it attractive. And yet, still, just as in a kind of a pastoral mode, I've, I've witnessed these things at requests from families because I just think, you know. It's 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 not evil. I don't think it's something I can just you know. The, 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 
For those who read the Bible, it says, judge not lest you be judged. This is a judge mm-hmm. not thing for me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am right there, too. I personally feel that um, a person should be able to decide, you know, and and what one person's perspective of quality of life is very different from another's. And, yeah. And, you know, and what's important, like, like the, the neural scientists that you talk about, you know, that cognitive awareness is critical. I mean, it's like, it is life and death, literally, you know, for, for that person. So, um, yeah. and, um, yeah, you know, so I, 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 I personally feel that um, they, people should be able to choose, you know, and... Um, but, but you notice the book is, is endorsed by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama doesn't think that that ra- that reason is 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 the important factor. He thinks it's consciousness itself, because of you know the mm-hmm. sort of the in the Hindu Buddhist the one mind. Our mind is a gift. We right. all participate in this universal consciousness, and brain you know and 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 mind is not just a, derived from matter, from brain, from cells and tissue. It has its own independent reality that we don't fully understand. And so when Alzheimer's affects the brain, it doesn't necessarily affect the underlying mind or self-identity, which mm-hmm. is still there underneath the surface. And so he says consciousness is what matters ethically and uh, not, not, uh, no, you're not the, the, the scientific rationality of my friend in Chicago. So I like, I like his holiness. I support, I support that uh, theory. Uh, but on the other hand, like you, you know, I'm not going to uh, criticize somebody who just doesn't want to put up with this. Especially yeah, if they don't have yeah. a family, family members who love them and can sort of look after them a bit. You know? Right. And, and, you know, in the case of I Live Alone, you know, that doesn't have anyone, anyone to that they trust to be able to, you know, have a medical, be in charge of a medical directive. Um it can be very frightening. I mean, you know, some of the of what you see, and I personally think that, you know, if one can avoid, you know, that um, or choose to not experience that fear of, of you know, what can come in, it should be your choice. And you know, with the, the Dalai Lama and the consciousness, I mean, I you know believe in that uh, the supra consciousness um, that. You know, whether or not um, Grandma, you know, is here breathing, you know, and, you know, maybe even not body, um, but she's in the consciousness. She's in, she's in our, our past memories, you know, and um, current, um, and then I'm sure in future. So, I mean, the idea of this, the time of death being that, and um, is I don't know. I, I you know, in one sense it is. It's the end of the biological vessel <laughs> that we occupy. But in another end, it's certainly not the end of the consciousness and uh, um, the the yeah. yeah, ethos of an individual. Yeah, but it still doesn't mean that that you should forbid them from preemptive assisted suicide. Oh, no. That's what they want. You know? But, oh, but, but it's true that, that mind, mind before matter, and you know, the Buddhists believe that all of our memories are uh, somehow uh, enshrined in this uh, ultimate reality and they, that they never disappear. So it's kind of like, you yeah. know, your memory is like on the cloud, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's not, just, it's not just in the terminal, you know, uh, on your desk, yeah. but somehow, you, you know, yeah. the, the, the memory is in the cloud. Nope, absolutely. And that's one big cloud. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, yeah, we're getting down to about 10 minutes, and there's just um, one couple things I want to um, pass on. One of them is um, in, in your book, you have, you know, it's a very practical book. So in one, in one section, you have answers to 16 questions caregivers ask from diagnosis to dying. And I just want to kind of highlight a, a couple of them to Comment on one of them is: um, Are there really any effective drugs to stop this disease? 
And the reason I asked that one is in particular because of the recent news of a new drug. Yeah, like bio. Yeah, we won't we won't even, we won't talk about the name of that company. But uh, no, I'm on live on. But but let's just say that okay. So um, I've actually been involved with you know some of this research originally. There was a class of drug called cholinesterase inhibitors, which, you know, beefed up the amount of acetylcholine in the brain, and that's a neurotransmitter, and it gets depleted. It does get depleted in the in, in Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> so this, in, in, you know, will slightly increase it. But actually, on a scale of one to ten, uh, if if a really strong drug would be like ten, that uh, would be uh, um, insulin for diabetes. Okay, uh, I would say what what that what what the what the cholinesterase inhibitors do is probably a 0.5. In other words, less than one. Mm. Mm. That low. That low. And 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 of course, they're only really approved and should only be used, I think, very early on in the in the in the in the progression because after you, after you get to a certain point, they really have no effect at all. Um, and and no one should worry about withdrawing them because that's okay to do. Now it's like, it's like treating a brain tumor with aspirin. Neurologists do prescribe aspirin for brain tumor, but that has no impact on the underlying development of the tumor itself. And so that's so we don't have much. And then there's this other idea that well, okay, there's a a protein uh, 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 that uh, uh, the beta amyloid, the plaques in the brain, and so forth. Nobody really thinks that those cause anything. Uh, they're probably downstream after effects of something that's going on upstream, maybe brain inflammation uh, in midlife, who knows. But um, uh, there is, it, it doesn't do much good. And, and, and in fact, um, uh, I just think that right now we're, we're, we're pretty much striking out uh, now. You know, someone may come up with something, but this is a really complex condition. It's totally in contrast with, say, HIV, where once they found the the uh, viral uh, instigator, they could do the three-drug cocktail, and, and, and that was all good, uh, and it became a manageable illness. But this is much, much more complex. And even Dr. Alzheimer himself, in 1907, in the famous case of Augusta Dia, Seven-year-old woman. He did not think he had discovered a new disease. He thought he could simply identify an aspect of the naturally aging brain, so that if we all hmm. lived long enough, we would have these kinds of uh, conditions of senile dementia. And I actually uh, think there's some truth to that. Uh, so we're working really hard to, you know, find the magic bullet. But nobody finds the magic bullet. No one's found it. You know, it's been since 19. Um, um, you know, 1990, that everybody's been pushing and pushing and pushing for it, uh, but we're not getting any place. And so that suggests to me that this is a situation. But on the other hand, okay, on that scale of 1 to 10, I would tell you that music and memory is a 7. I would tell you that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, Unforgettables Choir, where caregivers and people who were affected by the illness sing together and they come together and they smile and they experience great joy. I would say that's a seven. I would say that, uh, 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 you know, the Alzheimer's poets in Brooklyn reading Robert Frost to all these folks uh, and, and suddenly they begin to chime in. I would say that that's, uh, um, that's a seven. So to me, uh, you know, the key thing is uh, you know, where do we put our hope? Where do we put our hope? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and somehow in American culture, we're almost, you know, we're just so into thinking there's going to be a pharmaceutical magic bullet for everything. And, you know, this recent thing in the last six months, uh, where, you know, finally after so many years, they launched a new drug. It wasn't effective at all. It was barely approved by the FDA. They're highly controversial. And actually, uh, in my opinion, does absolutely nothing to benefit the patient. And it's cost, you know, it's not just like you're taking a pill. It's yeah. got to be done intravenously. It's IV. 
So, you, you know, you've you got to stick somebody with a butterfly needle, which is not nice if you, deme- if you have dementia and you have no insight into what's going on. So I just feel like, you know, we're much better off to emphasize environment, mm-hmm. interactions, uh, techniques for connecting, how to communicate. All that's the way to go. We need to put a lot more money into that. And, and hopefully someone will come along with a magic bullet. Yeah. You know what? Uh, let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, employ things you know that work, that bring joy and happiness to the individual. You know, I mean, if you're maximizing their later days. Um, well, gosh, we're down to the last couple of minutes, so we didn't get a chance to get to some other questions, but um, people can go ahead and get your book um, and get answers to those, like, you know, how quickly will I decline or should I tell anybody about this? But um, those are included in there. So, but I do want to conclude on hope. You mentioned hope, and in your book, you do a chapter about it, uh, hope and faith, um, being open to surprises, man's best friend. So tell us, um, for people listening who are currently um, working with individuals, very forgetful people, um, where, why, why hope and, and where to find hope? Yeah, so hope, you know, hope, you know, I guess, broadly speaking, is some sense of a path to a brighter future. And uh, we all need hope, and caregivers need hope, and uh, we need to be encouraging them to put their hope in the right places. So passive hope is that, okay, they're going to come up with a pill. Not, you know, mm-hmm. they. It's going to come from out of it. Okay, good luck. Uh, haven't seen it yet. But um, active hope is um, engaging these individuals in all the ways that that are really helpful to them, in all the ways I've, I've discussed with you, and, and, and also being open to surprises. So you have, I'm using this word from Larry Dossie, MD, who wrote a book called One Mind. You have to be a noticer. You have to notice the hints and the winks and, 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 and be open to surprises in the sense that, you know, all of a sudden, um, I mean, my grandmother had probable Alzheimer's. This was before they used the word much, but, you know, I would do a little assisted oral feeding with her in a nursing home, and I didn't expect her to respond to my comments, but every once in a while she did. She might just say, hey, Stevie, it's you. And I was shocked. <laughs> so, but so, so we, we, this is this whole thing of paradoxical lucidity and what's going on. And, and, that's, and, and it tells a caregiver, no, this person in front of you is still your loved one. She's not gone, a husk, a shell, dead, and so forth. But she's still there underneath the silence or perhaps the confusion and 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 you can take great solace in that because your actions of caring are meaningful. That's where hope yeah. has to come from. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Stephen, for your time today. I really enjoyed your conversation, our conversation, and, and I have so many notes here. I've taken ideas, and, and you know, when I go ahead and. Posted on social media, people are going to wonder what we're we talking about. But I really appreciate it, and, and I love your book. It's really it's a practical guide, and I love practicality when it comes to such an important um, situation. Okay, and just go to you know Stephen with the phgpost dot com, and right there on the home page you'll see dignity for deeply forgetful people. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Thank you for your time. And now if people want to get with you through, through the website would be the way to do that? Yeah, that's the way to do it. I have, a, I have you know, my email is there. Uh, you, you know, you can get, get me at uh, stephengpost at gmail.com is fine. Well, I usually respond. Well, thank okay. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Have Thanks. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Dr. Stephen G. Post. And we've been talking about his new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease.
And again, as he noted, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is stephengpost.com, and that's Stephen with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, post.com. Everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show, and until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.